The interesting thing that's happening now, I think really uh, as a result of uh, films like Nightmare on Elm Street, is that we're getting into what I have coined as rubber reality, which is uh, films that deal with the way that reality can be distorted and permeated, uh, going into dream states, into dr- in states of madness and uh, dis- uh, all sorts of strange illusions. There seems to be a deeper grid that I've tried to find, and that is how how the engine of life really works. And I think it, it works a lot off of violence, like it or not. And it works off a lot off of um, things that are not rational and very difficult to perceive and in some ways can only be sort of a dumbrated, a, a sort of sketched and shadow played in, in films and in uh, horror films. It's very difficult to know what will later be judged as art. I guess what I've tried to do is I've tried to make movies where I can honestly say I haven't seen that before and to follow my deepest intuitions, in some cases literally my dreams, so that I don't feel like I'm copying something that's come before me and uh, to try to do things that um, you know speak to sort of the, the areas outside the fences where the wild animals are. It seems to me that the things that move us historically, both personally and nationally, are those things, those things that aren't on the grid of rationality. Quite often my audiences are the outcasts, you know, the kids with the long hair and people that society discounts. And they're quite often the, the absolute quickest to grasp what I'm doing, much faster than the civilized critics and people that supposedly are supposed to have heads on their shoulders. Whatever you do, don't fall asleep. Welcome to Speak All Evil, the podcast you were warned about. I'm Trent here with Kevin, Kat, and Dave. Hello. Hi. Hi. Hello. This week, snooze fest, whatever you do, <laughs> don't fall asleep. Talking about nightmares, dreamscapes, the unwaking experiences that we all have. Uh, we got a brand new one this week. It was a 2020 release, but not uh, on streaming in the U.S. until a few months back. Dave, this was your pick this week. What do you got for us? I picked the movie Come True. I actually watched this movie with COVID um, once completely hallucinating and then once regular. And then I watched it again this week. Um, it's directed by, love this, Pilot Priest. Ooh. <laughs> uh, I like, I already, I just like that Pilot Priest is the director <laughs> of this movie. And it's the story of a high school girl who sleeps on a slide in a playground and crashes a friend's house sometimes. Um, It's never really fully revealed why she doesn't live at home. But as the story unfolds, you begin to have bigger fish to fry as far as all the raised questions that that happen. And uh, you don't even worry about that anymore. Um, So she takes part in a university sleep study that's able to monitor people's dreams. And the movie revolves around... Uh, what kind of study they're doing and the, the psychological and physical trauma that goes along uh, with the subject's nightmares. Um, this has like a low-key, like mumblecore aesthetic. It reminded me a bit of uh, It Follows in the oh, way yeah, that definitely. it raises lots of Big unanswered yes, questions to like disorient the viewer. Uh, like at, at the same time, the characters themselves become confused. Um, the dream sequences in this 
are like super dark and ethereal and cryptic and they they give no insight as to what's actually happening and it makes it more unsettling and more realistic in like the context of like a dreamscape um that's the only thing when they show dreams in movies i feel like a lot of times the way they depict dreams is like too normal it's too much like yeah. real life so like yeah. the slight alterations like the things that we talked about in it follows they really win in this movie too um and it has a crazy ending that i had brought up earlier that i'd like to do a spoiler round at the end of the entire episode after we talk about the next movie we'll get into spoilers for both although the next one has been spoiled you know for years now but um i loved come true uh super weird uh cronenbergian like sci-fi uh what did you guys think I love this one, and this is on Hulu right now. Hadn't heard of it. I feel like Hulu has is like one of the more unsung spots for horror. We've seen a lot of great like under the radar stuff on Hulu and over the radar. Um, yeah. Well, you know, it's getting it's getting kind of like video port because now you have the good movies like this and like Goodnight Mommy. I saw is on there, but then you also have like Sharktopus. <laughs> and then you also have like all these really like homemade movies. So it almost reminds me of like the heyday of the VHS when you'd go in and you didn't know if the movie was made by New Line Cinema or if it was made by like some guy in his basement. So it's kind of cool when you go to Hulu and see the selection like that. Yeah, a lot of television too. Um, but don't sleep on Hulu for horror. Um, you nailed it with Cronenbergian and also Kanajan. I don't know if there is uh, a connection there, but. This is like David Cronenberg meets Nightmare on Elm Street, I thought. Um, I, I loved the Sleep Institute when she starts going to the sleep study, the helmet that they have her put on. Everybody in the sleep study wears these like weird like cloth like helmets and they wear these weird suits like straight out of like the brood or any Cronenberg movie. Um, big, big fan of this one. I had a great time. I watched this a couple times. It's a little confusing, but it's one that you just have to like stay with. And, um, I have some problems with the ends, but we'll talk about that later. I love the uh, Philip K. Dick reference in this. If anybody's familiar with Philip K. Dick, I used to yes. read like back when I used to read, you know, before, high-speed internet and smartphones and things like that. Reading got canceled. Yeah, reading books, you know, book reading. <laughs> Who does that anymore? But I've read a bunch of Philip K. Dick, and I liked that reference. There's a whole thing about that. Um, there's a Night of the Living Dead scene in this where you're at the movies that, you know, checks a, a major horror box. There are poster Easter eggs in this that I thought check, like, horror boxes. You know, you've got the Weekend at Bernie's poster. I don't know if anybody noticed. Uh, yes. In Sarah's room. Oh, my room. God. And then at the Sleep Institute in, uh, in I guess it's Riff's office, Jeremy. I'll be back. Yeah, got the Terminator, original Terminator poster. So there are like tons of clues in this movie, and I'm sure I didn't get them all, but I really love this one. I, I would recommend it highly. Yeah, this is a great one. Uh, I know, Dave, you like to call it Pilot Priest, but this was actually written and directed by Anthony Scott Burns. We <laughs> talked about him in the... When uh, I read it, said Pilot Priest. Uh, what's that? When I read online, it said Pilot Priest. Well, that's his DJ name. So Anthony Scott Burns <laughs> oh, yeah, is the writer and director, oh. but he's a DJ and he did a bunch of the music for this movie. So he's credited as doing the score along with oh. a somebody named Electric Youth. They I did all Electric the music Youth. for this. And Electric Youth has done some cool shit like uh, Drive, 
with Ryan Gosling. Uh, but we talked about Anthony Scott Burns in the Satanic Panic episode because Jocelyn Donahue from House of the Devil, our, our main character in that movie, she was in his Father's Day segment of the Holidays Anthology. Right. And that made me fall in love with this guy. I don't recommend Father's Day as an anthology, or uh, I'm sorry, Holidays as an anthology. It's, it's like a t- typical anthology. It's very uneven. But his segment stood out so much that I couldn't wait to see like what he did in a feature. And holy fuck, did he come through with Come True. It is very Cronenberg. I thought it was not just David Cronenberg. This reminded me of Possessor, too. Yeah. Brennan Cronenberg. Is. Like yeah. he, He's aping a lot of Cronenbergs here. Trent, I love the Philip K. Dick pickup uh, that she grabs the We Can Build You book. Um, and I mean, I think probably more so for people familiar with Dick would probably go like do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. But Dick is well known for like Man in the High <laughs> you have Castle, to stop doing that. Uh, A Scanner Darkly. What's that? You have to stop doing just Dick. You have to say Philip K. Dick every time. Because okay. Dick. I, I, I revert to a 12 year old every time you're like, uh, if you're not familiar with Dick. <laughs> I am very familiar with Dick. <laughs> That's that's definitely your Dick. problem and not mine. I will I will refer to the man as I so choose. Me and Trent are over um, here like. <laughs> but you have you have like man in the man in high ca- in the high castle. Skinner Darkly both have been you know adapted. Um, yes, Trent. I freaked out when I saw the weekend at Bernie's poster. And Dave, you mentioned it follows. So I didn't just get the it follows vibe. Uh, that you were talking about, I got like this timeless essence of this movie where it's very unclear, like it follows, what time this movie takes place in. Because you have Weekend at Bernie's, you have the Terminator poster in fucking Riff's office. And I guess I don't want to be the one to disclose why he's called Riff. I thought that was actually kind of like a lame moment in the movie. You never really knew, and especially after you find out the great reveal... It's very possible that this movie takes place in the 80s, in the 90s. It, it could take place in the 50s. We don't know um, because of, of what you end up discovering. Uh, but from a horror perspective, there's a great interview. I don't know if you guys watched. Uh, there's a great 18-minute interview on YouTube with Anthony Scott Burns where he's talking about this movie. And he specifically talks about loving slasher films and a big inspiration for this movie was he talks about how in slasher films, he loves how you are existing in a world that doesn't exist. Like all the rules are off. You, you know, like, like nobody would do the things they do in slasher films in the real world. And, and we just talked about that with the Friday, the 13th episode, how like, it's just ridiculous. Like no one's going to not jump over the body and and no one's going to run up the stairs um, and I loved like listening to him talk about this and how he sort of put that like love of that horror genre into what is clearly a very sci-fi leaning up and coming director, a writer and director. Um, I loved the performance of Julia Sarah Stone as Sarah, our main character that that is <clears throat> the the girl you talked about, Dave, that sleeps on a slide and ends up in a sleep study. Because um, as we'll discuss in both of these movies tonight, uh, apparently it's really easy to get into a sleep study. I don't know about you. I've never come across a flyer for a sleep study or had one in my own town. Um, but these movies definitely let you know that you can you can get into a, a sleep study pretty easy. I think you um, can. What? I think you can if you if you were interested. 
Sure. I'll, okay, so you, I'll, like, you have I'll a good job. Like, the, the others of us have to like do stuff like sleep studies and blood <laughs> platelets and like all this yeah. shit. <laughs> but I mean, I thought, um, again, it's another movie where it, it rides the line of, of horror, but definitely like scary, evil. Um, other than Sarah, you really only have Riff that we keep talking about. Um, so it's, it's mostly a two-character movie where you don't really get to know the other characters a ton. Uh, Trent, you mentioned the Night of the Living Dead, like the obligatory Night of the Living Dead shot. But I appreciated this one that it was in a theater and not just like on TV yeah, in the background. Yeah. I thought that was like, okay, like nice job. You have the obligatory Room 237 nod when Riff has to take Sarah to the hospital and he's like, my friend, I can't find her. She's in room 237. Oh, um, I didn't even notice. You have, mm-hmm. a, you have a ton of Romero references where Dr. Meyer, who is the head of the sleep study, he's wearing the same glasses that George Romero does. Thank you, IMDb. Um, but you also have Sarah wearing a T-shirt that I desperately want that says Romero Fizz Ed. Yeah, yeah. Great fucking that. t-shirt. Almost yeah. as good as like the splice shirt from American Movie. Uh, <laughs> I love this one, Kat. I need your thoughts. Um, I watched this movie once and it didn't make any sense to me. So as soon as it ended, I just restarted it right then. And then oh, I wow. still didn't really have much of an idea what was going on, <laughs> to be honest. I think the whole aspect of being able to see one's dreams through technology is something very interesting. And so I was excited about what spooky shit was going to happen. But then I was just confused. So, so confused. Uh, I thought it took a cool turn when things started to seem to exit the dreams into the real world. Kind of like sleep paralysis-esque vibe going on. But did that part even matter? Uh what was the point of that? What was the point of the gender aspect of the sleep study patients? Was anything real? What was the point of the glowing-eyed shadow men? What did they represent? I just was left with so many questions and zero answers, so I'm still confused. I thought the movie itself was beautiful. I thought it was very well shot. I liked the moody lighting. Um, I thought the sound design was very effective. I liked the transitions between, you know, the the sl- uh, the dream uh, videos into the actual dreams themselves. I thought that was very powerful. I uh, just wished I understood what was happening the entire time, because <laughs> even with the ending being what it was, upon my rewatch, it still didn't really make sense to me. I was just honestly waiting to talk to you guys about it because I thought maybe you would tell me what the fuck was going on. <laughs> uh, well, I loved, you mentioned the lighting and I, I meant to mention that the way this is lit reminded me a lot of Manhunter, which we talked about mm-hmm. not long ago. Like, yes. It's very stylized. Like there are entire sequences that are like just in this weird, like low blue light. There's almost never any brightly lit scenes in this. It's all either dark or blue or green and the like, you're you're looking at these screens all the time and there are like digital uh, representations of people falling asleep because what they're doing at the sleep institute is they're like watching people's dreams so they have people hooked up to these machines and you're seeing instead of just like seeing you're you're seeing their vital signs and all this stuff and you know as the brain goes into sleep but you're seeing when they start dreaming like what they actually dream but before that you're seeing like all these weird almost kind of retroy 
all the technology know? is so mumbo jumbo. Yeah, it is. It's like yeah. there's one point yeah. where he's like increasing a soundboard fader. He has a soundboard. It's clearly yeah, a soundboard. It's like a Mackie, and he's like, oh, I'm going to look closer at the <laughs> image. And he like turns up the thing, and all the like piping and cabling yes. is like hardware store like tubing. Yes. But it doesn't look cheesy at all. It just looks like Cronenberg. It looks like yes. 70s it's, Cronenberg. It's confusing. Yeah. It's it's Cronenberg and like the It Follows thing. It makes you question like what era is because like they're presenting you with like what you're assuming is very futuristic technology, but the stuff they're using it looks like it's from a Cronenberg movie or like the 70s or something. However, it all totally works. And the lighting thing reminded me, and I've talked about this before, but like David Slade, like Hard Candy or 30 Days of Night. Like, I loved the yeah. tinting yeah. that was used in this entire movie. Normally, a dark movie like this would bug me, but this one made me watch it, like, completely in the dark, leaning in. I wanted to see those weird little screens and how the shapes were forming into what the, the dreamers were actually seeing. Um, and in the interview with Burns, he's talking about uh, that Harvard apparently did actually develop some technology and do some studies on how when you're awake they could interpret what your eyes were seeing through brainwaves. And it got Anthony Scott Burns thinking, well, what if we could do that when we're, in, when we're asleep as well and try to figure wow. that out? So I, didn't, I don't know. I, I didn't even think of that. You know, there's, there's been a couple stories just this year about um, at least one. There might be two different um, people where um, doctors and scientists that have successfully figured out a way where somebody who is nonverbal and can't move they can speak through the brain waves and they can read out like if, if they think the words and they think the images, they can actually like read out what those words and images are so that somebody who's totally incapacitated, but their brain is still fine and conscious, they can communicate through thinking. Like, I mean, that's 2021. Well, that, that, that science is, is essentially the centerpiece kind of of this. And like the, I was looking up the significance of, Chapters, yeah, that was weird to me. Yeah, yeah. it's Carl Jung anime. And oh, really? Yeah, the whole thing's Carl Jung. Oh, all all of the chapters are from uh, the psychologist Carl Jung. Female, uh, they're all Jungian archetypes. So it starts out with the persona, which is the outer face that we present to the world. You know, I think that means we kind of see Sarah like struggle with this, which is why. There's the weird unresolved stuff that you talked about, Dave, where she's avoiding her mom and she's sleeping on a slide and, and all of this, this random handling of people and objects in her life. Uh, the second one is the anima and the animus, which Young sort of said anima. was like the opposite image of the biological sex. So you're looking at lovers, projections of lovers and your fantasies. Then it goes to the section of the shadow, which is our animal side, which is the source of both creative and destructive energies. Um, so at one point, you see Sarah kind of quit the study. You see her start to be more aggressive. And then it ends with the self, which is the true inner self, which is this sort of awakening that Sarah is trying to get to. So that's that's almost equivalent to the movies where we see like the painting on the wall that gives away like what's actually happening. And you, but you get to the end and you and you find out through the movie because you didn't look close enough at that picture. You that's this I mean? movie. That's There's so like many clues in this movie. Titles. That's why, I mean, I, I know. I always say, watch it another time. But that's why I said, like, when you watch this a second time after the very ending, 
and you're just trying to see clues, there's so many. They're so good. Hmm. Wow, that's amazing. I had no I was wondering about all the the title cards for each chapter didn't make any sense to me. I was like, I don't really know what this means. Interesting. Huh. Yeah, I mean, I knew it's like a lot of this I think is about, you know, beyond the actual like story, the literal story is about like identity and you know, that's that's what the the Philip K. Dick reference is about. Like he wrote a lot about questioning reality and questioning your own identity and your perceptions of the world and conspiracies and like you know like Alt- how do alternate you know realities real? where what if this had happened instead of this like, yeah yes. alternate realities right yeah alternate consciousnesses and um i do want to bring up how old do we think uh riff riff was okay well sarah is 18 riff i'm gonna i knew this was gonna be uh, a subject i'm just curious she makes they make a point of having her say i'm 18 yeah Yeah, because i missed that the first time and was like he's just fucking a high schooler i think he's i I think he's under 30 i would say he has a beard i don't think he's 30 (laughs) he has has... i had a beard in like seventh grade i would say he's probably 26 yeah that'd be and he's fucking an 18 year old well, this is a strange situation, you know? Also, I mean, is he fucking an 18-year-old? Uh, I mean... I don't know. This is all about dreams Ooh. and alternate consciousnesses and, like, uh, I'm not sure that they did copulate. Maybe no. they did. I mean, maybe that's just her fantasy. Did anyone watch Hemlock Grove? No, no clue. Uh, no. Oh, okay. I didn't watch it. That's what I know him from and also the terrible horror movie Truth or Dare. Uh, but yeah, he's an interesting Ooh. character. So at some point, as Sarah joins the sleep study, she finds herself being followed by an intriguing guy that sees her pick up the Philip K. Dick, you're welcome, Dave, book. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, they go to see Night of the Living Dead at the theater, and we find out that Jeremy, or Riff, is the worst stalker in the world because <laughs> yeah, so he sits in front of her at the movie theater. I was like, dude, Everyone like, knows if you're stalking behind. someone and following them into a movie theater, <laughs> you, you have a lot of rows behind them to go ahead and sit. Listen, not if you want to play. Here's the thing. I know the move he's doing. You want them to know that mm. you're also mm. in the same place as them, but you don't even see them and you don't even care that they're right. there. Yes. I've pulled that I move before. Yes. I think we've all Next done that level move. Cat. Yeah, yes. you got it. <laughs> I've cracked the code. I'm, I'm scared of all of you more now. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I should have shown him like on our Facebook and Instagram page. You yeah. know, like, uh, oh, it's private. Damn it. It's like, oh, he watched my stories. Eventually, Sarah and Riff hook up and... Mm she discovers that he has one of these sleep machines that she has also been uh, dealing with at the sleep study at his house. And she watches one of his dreams. And in it, he is watching her, and it's, you know, very sexual. There's a very cool song playing in the background. But she opens her mouth, and she has fangs. And then there's another scene in the movie where the fangs come back. That, I feel like, I feel like I understand it, now and i'll save it but initially when i watched this movie it totally threw me off and kept me like on the horror tip because my brain is always going when is this going to get full-blown horror even when a movie doesn't get there but when i watched this i was like holy shit like it really kept me off balance i think it was a really smart move by burns to to add this element into it and one of the best parts of his writing uh in the entire film we haven't talked much about this dreamscape by uh, these shadowy figures and i think cat you said it uh that they're kind of like the uh s- sleep 
uh, paralysis mm-hmm. people. That's the route I thought it was going to go in. Yeah, I like just... that it was kind of in that realm. That like, yes, because you have the the thing like the the actual documentary, the nightmare. I don't know if you guys have seen that, but it's about multiple yes. people who see the same black figure. So I liked that this kind of went there because that's like a really. I don't know, scary, scary, like deep fear of people. Uh, I loved that. Yeah. Have any of you guys ever had sleep paralysis? Um, oh, yeah, sure. Oh, no. Yeah. So I have a fun sleep paralysis story. I don't know if I've told oh, you guys this story before. Time for it. So I do suffer from sleep paralysis sometimes. It hasn't happened since I changed bedrooms, which I think is interesting. I don't know if like your space has something to do with it or what. But the last time I had sleep paralysis... This dark figure was like coming onto my bed, and I'm just you know, obviously laying there, paralyzed. Is that the word? You think paralyzed? Paralyzed. paralyzed. No. Looking for. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want. I didn't want to be the one to say. I like paralyzed better. Um, and in my brain, I'm like, all right, how am I? How am I going to take care of this? Like, I'm tired of dealing with this fucking asshole. So, in my paralyzed state, I thought the best thing I could do is try to make out with this uh, dark being. Great idea. And so I just reached for it and like opened my mouth and was like, <laughs> uh, and then boom, I woke up and I haven't had sleep paralysis since. So I think what I'm trying to do, PSA, try to make out with your sleep demons no, and they won't come back. I have a similar experience actually. I was in, in my bed, I was sleeping and this dark figure came into my dreams and he came in and... All of a sudden, he put his hand on my genitals, and he starts stroking up and down. And all of a sudden, the door flies open. My mom comes in, and I'm like, it, it was the ghost. <laughs> <laughs> isn't, isn't sleep paralysis just that, like, you're, you're moving out of REM, and you're, like, sort of waking up, but you're, when you're dreaming, sometimes your, your body is, like, generally, in a, it's immobilized so that you don't get up and, like, start sleepwalking. I mean, is it really sleep paralysis? Or like, because I've had times where I'm trying to like wake myself up from a dream, you know, like after lucid dreaming, you're trying to wake up, and you can't. There's that moment where you're you're like sort of conscious, but you can't move. Mm-hmm. I think that's like a state of I don't I don't know if it is, but it, there's a state where you're waking up from dreaming and you can't move for a minute, and you're like your eyes are fluttering as you're you're aware of your rapid eye movement, and you just are like frozen there until you break through your consciousness and then you're awake again. Dave kind of nailed it with Rodney Asher's The Nightmare, which I had not seen, Dave, until we watched Come True. Oh, really? And then I watched the interview with Anthony Scott Burns, and he Burns says that he suffered from, from sleep paralysis as a kid. So that's why all these elements are in there. And he also says, I saw this movie, The Nightmare, and it made me understand everything. And it's an interesting movie. It starts off very cheesy. Like you think it's going to be this like total hokey documentary, um, but it it goes to very dark places and it, it pulls everything in together. Um, I would definitely recommend that. But yeah, the that? shadow men, no. like a lot of sleep paralysis sufferers, say that they see these. Um, I think it's a nod, like the part of this movie is to what many of these patients have said, um, but it's also a total nod to some of the communications trying to reach Sarah in this movie. Um, I also wanted to ask, have you guys ever had like reoccurring dreams? So I've never had sleep paralysis, 
But when I was a kid, I suffered from reoccurring nightmares. So it was either the same nightmare every night or literally I would go to sleep and have like an ongoing series of dreams that progressed themselves every night and terrified me. I've had many reoccurring dreams in my life. Uh, so many. Um, there's a number. Like I have a handful that I still have all the time. They're usually like anxiety related. But yeah, sure. Yeah, my dreams are like the ones that are the scariest. They make no sense why it's scary. Like I, my one of the scariest dreams I've ever had. It sounds so weird, but I was around a bunch of people and they were like, "Hey, Dave, get in this convertible." And so I got on, got in the convertible car. And they all got on top of the roof and started stepping on it and making it crush down on top of me. And that was like, I was terrified, super claustrophobic in like a really weird spot. But I think the weirder you go with the dreams in the movies, it gets, it gets scary. I could have done without the glowing eyeballs, actually. Oh, I like mm. that. You like you that? that? Mm. I, I like that. Yeah, I thought that was like the scariest part is when they all popped up. Yeah, at but the end. it's oh. kind of like Bugs Bunny, though. You know, when you just see the eyeballs, like in the yeah. After I saw the movie Demons, I started having a reoccurring nightmare. I was living in in a house like out in Limington, which is a small town, like in Maine, and I would have this dream every single night where I would walk out of my house and across the street to my best friend's house, but my best friend didn't live there. It was like this old timey mechanic guy. And his yard was full of like busted up cars. And I would go stand on the porch with him. And then we would hear this like howling sound of like vehicles coming towards us and screaming. And he would just look at me and say, they're coming. And I would run home and get all of my family in the house and lock every door and window. And then all of a sudden green ooze would come up from the basement. And I would be like, I would think I forgot to lock the bulkhead. And these demons would burst into my house and kill my entire family. I would be laying in bed and my bedroom at the time had all of the like circus posters. So like Motley Crue and Poison and Bon Jovi. And I would lay in bed and pretend to be dead while the demons ate the posters off my wall. And that happened to me every night for like three months. By circus posters, you mean uh, Circus Magazine, the old circus like, magazine, glam yes. metal the, magazine. The used to put pictures up magazine. on your wall, probably. Yeah, I was thinking you, you meant clowns when yeah, you first said like, that. Mm. What do you think it means that I don't dream really ever? Is it the drugs and alcohol? Yep. Okay. Definitely is. Yeah, I just want to yes. make sure. <laughs> Short like, answer. Is it, yes. What does it say about me that I don't dream? Hmm. Is it the self-medicating? Yeah, probably. <laughs> Sweet dream. with our snooze fest and our don't fall asleep theme we're gonna go with the obvious 1984's a nightmare on elm street written and directed by wes craven this is what started the house that freddie built it started new line cinema it was what they made their money on and would lead them to peter jackson's lord of the rings trilogy So essentially what you have here is a classic slasher setup where you're introduced to some teenagers 
and they look like they're interested in drinking and maybe doing some fucking and some bad stuff, and you assume you're going to get like your classic slasher setup. In fact, the movie opens with the classic scene of Freddy making the finger knife glove. However, you get a nice little paranormal twist in this one where essentially what's happening is you are introduced to Freddy Krueger, who can go into your dreams if you fall asleep, and if he kills you in your dream, you're dead in real life. Uh, this is this is another one that I'm going to have to be a little gentle on because this was... I know I talked a lot about Friday the 13th last week and how much that meant to me, but this is this was my introduction to horror. This was the very first horror movie I ever saw. I was very young. I think I was like six or seven when it came out. I think I talked about this in our very first episode. So Freddy was my introduction into horror. I have a very, very uh, dear place in my heart for Nightmare on Elm Street and the Kruger movies and the character itself. I am well aware, very self-aware of how campy this became. Um, But watching this again through the lens of Speak All Evil, um, I can just as easily pull this movie apart. However... I think that this first one is really good in terms of originality. I thought that Craven did a good job kind of like following slasher rules, but then adding a little twist to make it a little more interesting and suspenseful. Uh, Also, it's fairly gory, but a pretty low kill count. And I I, I never noticed that until now. I mean, I think when you think of Nightmare on Elm Street, you think, okay, Freddy's just going to kill a bunch of people. But because of the elaborate death scenes that this gives, which sort of, uh, Dave, you talked about um, Final Destination recently. I feel like this movie sort of sets up like some elaborate death scenes and they would get even more elaborate in, in future sequels. Um I do think that it is genuinely scary because in the first one here, Freddy is not campy he does talk which is uh, which is one of the rules that craven sort of breaks about your traditional slasher but he doesn't really give like some of the jokes he says some cheesy things in this movie like i'm your boyfriend now but it's not like over the top like um i don't know i i think this one other than the ending i think it holds up uh dave trent and i went and saw this last summer at like a midnight showing at, at, at a drive-in when we were all trying to battle the effects of COVID lockdown. Uh, Dave and Trent were off while I brought my daughter and one of her friends to their first horror movie at the drive-in. Um, and I remember texting Dave and being like, all right, you sold on this yet? And he was just like, nah. <laughs> so I don't have to ask Dave what he thinks about this, but Kat, I, we've never talked about Nightmare on Elm Street. I don't know what this means to you, if you've ever seen it, what your relationship is with it. Um, but, but, but before we get into like the meat and potatoes of the movie, um, what's your take on the original Nightmare on Elm Street? I love Nightmare on Elm Street. I think it honestly still holds up and I still think it's got its terrifying moments for sure. I've watched it a couple times recently, actually, and there are still parts that make me, you know, go and make my skin crawl a little bit. Uh, Examples include the ripping off of Freddy's face. I think that's the one that gets me the most with those creepy eyeballs just staring right at you. Um, The phone tongue. Anytime dead Tina shows up, 
like that moment when like there's nothing just dragging this body bag that's just leaving a trail of blood like that part you know that part still gets me also like the bath scene just that claw coming up it's just iconic and it's fucking scary to be honest uh i also love that there are some parts in the movie where you forget um or have a hard time kind of telling which is the dream and which is reality because you get so into freddy's zone uh, it's easy to forget that this monster isn't hunting these sexy teens in real life, but instead in their in their dreams. Speaking of sexy teens, I'd like us all to take a, a second to acknowledge a baby Johnny Depp in a crop top. Everybody, round of Boom. applause. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I've said it before. I'll say it again. I think it's time to bring back the male crop top. I'm waiting for you guys to get on. I've been saying it for a year and a half now. Still waiting. Me, I'll, I'll start doing more sit-ups, okay? Please. I don't care. Give you me those tummies. Off, Kevin. I think you could do it. I think, yeah. I think we could all do it, honestly. I um, definitely couldn't do it. I am team male crop top. <laughs> like right about, right about uh, here? Oh. That's a little too close. Get some knee Um Yeah, I'm team uh, male crop top, and I'm not going to apologize for that, to be honest. Uh, I think what's most scary, though, is that this monstrous child killer is getting people in their most vulnerable state, like that of a child. So he definitely has a type. Um, You know, a person can only suspend sleep for so long. There's no way around it. And as someone who, you know, suffers from sleep paralysis from time to time, I know how helpless and vulnerable someone can feel in that state. Um, There's no getting out of it unless someone, you know can help you out or you help yourself out pull yourself out it's fucking terrifying so i think this is just you know this is the og nightmare situation uh but yeah i love the blood i love the gore love the concept love the monster in the first one maybe not in the 12 sequels or however many it had but i love nightmare on elm street it'll always have a little place in my heart i wonder if when johnny depp went in to do uh, the casting for Edward Scissorhands if he was like read the script and was like oh you mean like Freddy Krueger <laughs> been there done that he knew, he knew how to do it Fredward Krueger hands um, you know I like this one better now uh, I wow. do watch things differently now that uh, we do the podcast I w- try to watch things more not more open minded but just to have a little bit more reverence for some of the classics uh, but you have to understand, too, that where your journey started here, I had already seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You know what I mean? And Fair. I had already seen My Bloody Valentine. Right, right. And so, That's a like, big part of it, yeah. For me, it was diff- It hit a little bit differently. Uh, I was, you know, really, like, I found the one-liners, even though there was less in this one, really jarring and really cheesy. Um but, you know, I do all in all like this movie. I think it could be a little bit better. Uh, the time, it had really bad timing when it came out as far as there was like a bunch of like, I mean, like in the news, there was a bunch of like child molestation things. But honestly, as twisted as it sounds, I wish it leaned more into his backstory and just how fucked up he was. Um, maybe a prequel of this could be really, really dope if they did the the, the prequel with the parent the ending with the parents burning him alive. Well, did you see the remake? Like, not to not to butt in, not. but did you see the 2010 I did remake? I did. It looks it looks interesting. 
Uh, it's it's terrible. <laughs> um, but originally, the script did for the 1984 one. It did have him as a child molester, but they right. backed off of that because of what you talked about, Dave. Because of right. there was a lot of backlash for real life uh, child molestation scandals coming out. But the 2010 hey, whoa, remake, whoa, 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 they, whoa, they did. whoa, whoa. This is my turn, Kevin. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm still on my take. I saw you look up and start to read, so I was just like... You only get one first take here. Just finishing my first take here before you come in. Um, but, you know, I did like it a lot better at uh, the drive-in. I think uh, maybe a slight buzz might have made me a little cynical and just kind of honorary about it. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it is it it has a certain mood uh, that it established, I feel like. Um, and the death scenes are really great. Uh, the only thing that I had a problem with is that the adults the whole time don't believe anything that's happening. Even when Johnny Depp fucking sinks into his bed and then his body shoots, uh, just his bodily fluids shoots all over the ceiling, no one still believes that there's anything supernatural <laughs> yeah. going on. He must have killed himself listening to his Walkman too loud or whatever. You know, um, Created a blood cyclone. Yeah. The, <laughs> the parents so, in this movie are the audience. Yeah. But uh, I, I do think uh, the, the folklore and the backstory of Freddy Krueger is one of the scariest elements for me. Um, and I love I loved that part of it. I love the, the, like, the nursery rhyme song and like the backstory of the parents killing him, um, that that I feel like is really well developed. And then some of the rest, and like you said, especially the ending, I feel like uh, just got kind of convoluted in too many cooks in the kitchen. Um, I think the the original ending was a happy ending, and even though I usually hate happy endings in horror movies, I think it would have made more sense. They kind of just tagged on the end to kind of create more sequels and to, to continue it. But I think you could have done that without doing that. And I think it would have been a little bit tidier. Um, but yeah, it was better this time. Um, it was about at the same level of like Friday the 13th. Oh, come on. Oh, you think this is much better than oh, Friday the 13th? Way better. Yeah. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, I, maybe it is better. It is better. I don't know if it's way better. This is one of the greatest horror movies of the 1980s. Mm. I, I don't know why, you know, I, I respect that um, that you don't care for it as much, Dave. But, you know, Kevin, you undersold this. Kat, you're apologizing. This is one of the greatest horror movies ever made and certainly one of the greatest and most impactful of the 1980s. Like this took, to compare it to Friday the 13th, sure, um, you know, Jason was like an icon. So it's hard to compare anything to that sort of impact. But this would be... You know, equal or greater impact. Um, Freddy was like the cool, way better than Jason character. We've talked about the one-liners and stuff like that. Yeah, that's fine. But but that's your first like sentient slasher villain um, mm -hmm. heel that you cheer for. That's the first time that they talked to you at all. And not only that, but like practiced self harm. There 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 was never a slasher. I don't even know since that would like as a weapon would like cut 
parts of himself off just to scare people. You know, like <laughs> yeah, right. he's doing that like thing that. where he's like, like "Look at me!" and he cuts off his fingers. <laughs> he's like, "This is your god." Tina. And he, Tina. he like cuts this. open his torso, and there's maggots in there. Oh. Uh, this really captured my imagination uh, as a kid. So, you know, certainly I, I, I have some bias. We talked about, like, just where things happen in your life. And I think it's similar to, like, music, you know? Like, sometimes you, certain peers of yours, like, revere certain music, but you happen to hear something more advanced before you heard that thing. Right. And so even though they love that thing because they heard it before this other thing, like... It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything to you because you already heard the next, like, phase of that and you don't really care about this. That's kind of how I feel about Friday the 13th because I was already watching Evil Dead and Texas Chainsaw and things like that and Nightmare on Elm Street. So to me, like, some of the stuff that one person might find, you know, that they might be more reverent of, I was already like, ah, when I saw that, it was kind of passe, but... One man's slash is another man's treasure. Exactly. (laughs) Um, But I don't think... (laughs) I don't think you can deny... I mean, I I made the claim that that hasn't been refuted about, you know, Friday the 13th being the most iconic horror franchise of all time. I don't think you can argue that the only competition would be Friday the 13th. And I think it's because it was so original. No, It was so different... What's that? Friday the 13th is the most iconic. Nightmare on Elm Street is their competition. It's the competition, yeah. Um, Because it's so original and it's so much different in that it really took it, instead of just trying to imitate Halloween and trying to like do the faceless slasher, it it, it took that in a totally different direction. And I'd love to get into some of the the more meta stuff that that brings it back to a movie like Come True. That opening sequence very taxi driver the classic like the guys making his weapons i love that i kind of forgot about that whole scene that opens up with making the claw but one thing that i noticed that this time that i didn't before is that johnny depp's character glenn reveals himself very early in the movie to be a lucid dreamer because all the kids on the block glenn and nancy and tina and rod they're all like having the same dream about this weird guy who has knives for fingers and he has the dirty red and green sweater and a scarred face and they're like they're starting to put it together that they're all dreaming about the same guy and glenn uh johnny depp's character says well just tell yourself you're dreaming and that you need to wake up which is classic lucid dream i'm wondering if any of you guys do you guys ever lucid dream well i thought it was a weird flex earlier when you just casually dropped like oh like when you're lucid dreaming like (laughs) uh like you can control your dreams like that's cool. sometimes yeah really I, yeah, yeah i can't do i don't think everyone can do that so you can't just no. like drop that like kevin have you do you ever lucid dream do you ever uh, uh definitely not no no cat lucid dream negatory captain none she of you even guys dream. no dream? i can't she doesn't even dream I've even i don't tried dream to do, i've tried to do this stuff like you drop the ball and all that are you uh, kidding me you hold the ball to fall huh. asleep i've tried the lucid dream it's wow. the drugs and alcohol trent I can't lucid dream. You never, you're never in a dream, and you realize that you're dreaming, and you're like, "Oh, I'm dreaming right now." Well, I should, you like, can get go out, fly, like something. jump out a window. Like, no, um, I just like get out of here. Um, That's the only many, thing. I many many times have fallen victim to um, waking up during a dream and being terrified, and then fall back asleep, and the dream continues itself where it left off. Mm. 
Well, you can wake yourself up if once you know you're dreaming, you can like do a bunch of crazy stuff because you realize you're just in a dream and you can like go fly, which is what I would typically do. Um, but then you can wake yourself up sometimes. Yeah, like like I'll be like, oh, this is a dream. I can just throw myself out the window right now. I'm gonna run right at the window. I'm gonna bust out and fly oh. over the whole town or whatever. Dude. And you can do that. It's like wow, this is amazing. Um, but you can wake yourself up if it's too scary. And that's where I relate to the um, the sleep paralysis because when you're trying to wake yourself up from a lucid dream, it's really weird. You, you start, you just keep saying like, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up, over and over and over. And eventually you start coming to, but you're paralyzed. You can't move and your eyelids are going. So that that's where I relate to that. I think that those things are connected. But You're, um, you're really subconsciously not. boastful. Like when it comes to this dream thing, like you, you're a whole different person. I haven't, I haven't even You've gotten got to the rest of it. Look, I'm just ego. <laughs> then you're dr- I never want to come in contact with the dream. I didn't think <laughs> in my dream. He's too powerful. No questions too. asked. But both of these movies deal with that that question of consciousness and that question of like, you know, what's real and you know what's subconscious and and what's a dream and what's reality. So. I don't think you can really escape that. Um, we can talk about premonition, premonitionary dreams later. Um, right. But uh, long story short, I love this movie. I think it holds up great. I think it is possibly the greatest 80s horror movie, just based on the impact that it's had. Um, you know, Freddy, you know, the whole the whole thing. But you haven't seen Dead and Buried. Um, I saw a little <laughs> bit of it at your house one time. And I was like, it was only like 20 minutes, but nothing happened. So I, I, I don't have a, an impression of it. Wow. Well, I think we need to get into um, Heather Langenkamp, who plays Nancy, who is our final girl in this one. Because there's a lot of debate about the validity and the acting chops and the actions of Nancy in this movie. So, you know, we talked about Friday the 13th. We've talked about Halloween. So obviously we have Jamie Lee Curtis in the conversation, which... By the way, Friday the 13th, Halloween, Nightmare on Elm Street, legendary music scores. They all give us earworms that we will all know for days. But Final Girls, where does Nancy stack up for you guys? Top. Anyone chime in on her status as a Final Girl? Because I felt like it was a little bit cheapened on this watch for me. But I want to hear you guys' take. Well, She was one of the first ones to really fight back. Yeah, she went home alone on him. Yeah, exactly. Ooh, yeah. She booby traps. Yeah. After all this, just hook up a sledgehammer. That's yeah, that's going to do it. <laughs> I've, I've been fighting the whole movie, but suddenly I have all of this time to Kevin McAllister my house. <laughs> oh my now, yeah, I, I did like that about her. Um, I don't know. I remember not liking her performance when we started the drive-in. She's very like whiny. I don't know. Beer goggles. She, she's very... Oh, why won't anyone believe me? Whereas, like, Jamie Lee Curtis is like, I'm going to fuck, hey, kids, go hide. I'm going to take care of business kind of a situation. Comparatively to the final girl in Friday the 13th, eh, I don't know. I, that one wasn't that great because she was stupid. We talked about it last time when she, like, was stacking boxes up in front of a door that opens the other way. Like, she wasn't a good final girl. So no, she's right. at the bottom so, of the barrel. So in this one... I agree. Like her, her, like like Heather Langenkamp's performance is not the best, but the writing for her character, like there's one time earlier in the movie where she runs up some stairs and they turn into like pancake mix, which mm-hmm. I love. Oh, I man. still, I, I always remember that, that scene. It's so, so good. good. 
And then when when she gets to her final battle with Freddy, like she has sort of spent the movie figuring this out, thinking about it, strategizing, and then she takes action on a plan that she's put in place. I think that she needs to get a lot more credit. Despite the acting performance and, and however Langenkamp played it, the arc of the character is actually much more powerful than a lot of other reactionary final victims of a slasher movie. I agree. I think that's a great point. I think Nancy is the ultimate like oh. 80s final girl, personally. Uh, Alien had already happened, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Se- was like seven, what was that? That was like 70, though, I feel like. 70-something? Yeah. That was like 78. 78. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I was just going to ask Nancy, Kevin why he was laughing when he said 78. I think Nancy is probably the... Because I said Nancy was probably the greatest final girl of the 80s. And I said something from the 70s. About Alien, yeah. And then I was like, well, I wouldn't really call that a slasher. And then I was like... I wouldn't really call uh, Ridley a final girl. I was more of a sci-fi horror thing. It wasn't like a slasher, the traditional final girl slasher. Oh, okay. It's just a slasher. slasher. Yeah, okay, okay, okay. Fuck you guys. (laughs) We mentioned the the Johnny Depp, the the blender cyclone blood of Mm -hmm. hell, one of the greatest horror death scenes of all time but I think that Tina's death scene yes. right early in the oh, movie yes. her whole yes. sequence where Freddy has the long arms that uh. was terrifying I think that's still really scary and then it's very poltergeist where she's like up on the ceiling and she's like rolling around the ceiling and the wall she's covered in blood she's leaving a little snail trail I mean that's pretty brutal stuff I feel the like for scene a teen with movie. Tina where she's being and there's a couple scenes in this movie we you already talked about like Glenn's death scene where they had a rotating room and then in Tina's death scene they have this rotating room where she's being dragged up the wall and across the ceiling that's so cool uh, but two problems with everything you both just said the face cutting off scene is super fucking cheesy, and it made me think immediately oh. of They Live. Like I wanted, no, bro, I wanted awesome. Roddy Piper. No, that's immediately right. there, amazing. Like putting his glasses on. Okay. Um, Tina's death scene has always it terrified me as a child, but her boyfriend Rod Rod Lane, played by uh, Nikki Nick Corey. <laughs> Uh, who apparently was on a bunch of heroin in all of his scenes. Sure. Um, huh. appar- like his whole performance in Tina's death scene in the bedroom, where he just keeps like sitting on the floor and going, Tina! <laughs> Tina! <laughs> Tina! Like a hundred times. I'm like, dude, you're like 6'4". And jacked. Can you get up and like pull her off the wall and like maybe hug her or something? I don't know. What would you do in that situation if you saw your girlfriend being pulled up I, a wall covered in blood? And you're on heroin. Yeah. Okay, that's fair. This movie is the only reason I learned what a crucifix is. I didn't know what that was, but the nursery rhyme, which was so haunting. Like, this was a movie geared at, you know, mm. teens and young adults who could go to a rated R movie. But with that whole nursery rhyme in the trailers, it really, like, captured the imagination of much younger people like myself and there's that whole line grab your crucifix i didn't know what a crucifix was i had to like look that up or ask google my parents it. yeah i couldn't google it i had to ask <laughs> like Microfiche. i mean what's a crucifix let's <laughs> 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 cross um so i you know i don't know if we care about the story that much i mean we know the story um eventually the kids start to wonder like why this 
guy is haunting all their dreams and killing them. And it breaks that wall between reality and, and dreaming and subconscious where you start to be unsure even as a viewer, like what's a dream and what isn't? You know, what's happening on the screen? Is that the kid's still dreaming? Sometimes they wake up. And that's something that happens sometimes in a lucid dream. Like you wake up and you're like, oh my God, I woke up from that. But it's just another dream. And you're dreaming that you woke up from your dream, but it's not really reality still. You, you still haven't woken up. So that happens a lot in this. Um, eventually you get the backstory about the, the, the crimes of Freddy and you get the confrontation with um, Nancy's mom, Marge, who is like the best alcoholic of the 80s, I think, uh, horror <laughs> movies, because not only, like it's not enough to just show that she drinks all day, but... She only drinks straight from the bottle. Mm. She has a giant, <laughs> giant bottle of vodka. Yeah, in every yeah. scene, she just carries it, it like into bed with her. Yeah. Um, I did notice some continuity errors where the bottle would be there, but then when it like goes back to yes. her, did yes. you notice that there's no bottle there? Well, and also like. Yeah, she's like trying to hide it from her daughter. It's like just put it in a cup, and she's not gonna know <laughs> you could, that you're fucking you could, drinking vodka right now. Maybe it could be OJ. We don't know. You could hide it better if yeah, if it wasn't yeah. the giant bottle. You fucker. It's crazy. It's crazy because Marge is played by Ronnie Blakely, who like apparently was nominated for an Oscar for a previous role, and in this one, like it, this is like the opposite of a typical slasher where the teenagers are the worst actors and you have like some parents that can kind of act and this one the parents are so bad even I'm, I'm sorry even John Saxon uh, R.I.P. who plays Nancy's dad uh, he passed away in 2020 I mean he was in I mean a, a minor role in Black Christmas 74 but yes. he was in Tenebrae yep. Dust Till Dawn like right. even his performance is so bad in this but Ronnie Blakely Marge that you were talking about, Trent, she goes like from zero to Carrie's mom in under <laughs> five seconds. And like, like there's so many parent parental things in this movie. Like, um, oh, let's just put bars on Nancy's window and everybody will be fine. Even Glenn's parents, because Johnny Depp's character Glenn lives across the street, even his parents are like, outside and like her mom's like oh my god all these bars on nancy's windows but glenn's dad's just like chugging beer and he's like i don't care i don't want that kid hanging out with our son no one's like why the fuck did she just put bars on every window in her home in less than 24 hours i was also wondering like if maybe her parents had had a kid that was killed by freddie that's uh, why they're yes. split up that's why they're so tortured that's why she's an alcoholic. Ah. And Thank they, you. This is one of the things I, that I noticed this time that huh. I never did is that they give you clues that think about it. This is a very compact cast and every single character, teenage character is an only child. And like Craven would revisit this with Scream, like albeit a little bit expanded cast. But in this movie, I never noticed this until watching it this time. All of the main teenage characters are only children. And it, it does give you some hints that the kids that Freddie killed were their siblings. So they weren't mm. only children to start with. I never noticed that until this oh, watch, Dave. I thought you were going to say Freddie was the father of all the kids. <laughs> <laughs> Paternity test. Luke. That's why they were so mad. <laughs> Freddie, like, cocked everyone in town, and then they had to, they had to kill him. <laughs> I think, you know, that 
definitely for me, the subsequent movies like ruined Freddy. Like right now, like he could be in a breakfast cereal commercial on Hulu, yep. and I would not yep. be afraid of him at all. He is at his scariest right here, and after that, he's what we were talking about, Jason. He's the you know the, the professional wrestler and the you know kind of the cartoon version of himself. But I think that did a lot to ruin this movie for me. Um, and it's hard to watch it without thinking about, you know, just, I don't know. But it's dark. I, I, I do like the story. And I do think even though the remake was a total flop, I think that there's a lot going on here that people could visit in horror movies. And so yeah. the right director could do something really cool with... Uh, the backstory, you can make the darkest thing ever out of that. You guys were like slagging yeah. the ending a little bit. I love the ending to this. I thought it was a no, it's terrible. great ending. What? No, it was great. It was. It, it gave you like, you know, it gave you like the fake kind of happy ending. And then I loved the car. Oh, I loved Marge getting, getting I, her just I, I can deal with that. What I can't deal with is the mom falling into like sinking into the bed with like the dry ice coming up around her and then like nancy nonchalantly being like dad you gotta leave i don't know what's happening but i have to deal with something and then her being like freddie i don't believe in you and then freddie's got like yeah but that, that wasn't is the, the end. part i have a problem with i, I didn't like that no either. you cannot yeah. justify it ever no, that was lame. Like the whole anytime a movie we've talked about this before, I, I don't remember what movie it was where it was like, I don't, you know, just say you don't believe, and then the bad guy goes away. Lame. Yeah, like, but this didn't like do that. that. It did that, and then it and then it went on from there. It, that was only like part of the dream. Yeah. So what came first, this or it? Because the ending of it is like oh, this was eighty four. Like, this is before it was published. Yeah. It so was it's like eighty seven. Same I think. ending as it. Like or it's mm. the same ending as this because it's like oh we're not afraid of you we're not going to give oh, you our power okay that might be what we talked about just yeah. like Friday the Thirteenth this was supposed to be a one and done Wes Craven intended his original script had had Nancy waking up had had her in her fight with Freddy burning him which makes sense because that's how the parents did him. And then her waking up and saying, I want everybody back. And it was all her dream. The entire movie was Nancy's dream. And then maybe you tack on that ending, but it was Robert Shea from New Line. And again, just like Friday the 13th, they were like, no, we think we have a franchise here. You have to change the ending and you have to give us sequel potential. I think it was again, for I mean, the best. This was, this was 84, so it had already been established that you could make a movie for $500,000 and make like $60 million. This one was like $1 million to like $1.8 and made $57 million. Yes. So they already knew. They didn't even have to know that you can make a cheap horror movie and turn it into a franchise. Um, I, Dave, just like you said, I typically nowadays would be pissed if somebody was like, Oh, it was all a dream. I used this to read movie, Word Up magazine. Would have worked for me. Even if you gave it, even if you took out like Marge getting pulled through the the fucking. Which why did you have to have her pulled through a small window? Because that was awesome. Door? Because it was took awesome. That away. <laughs> even if you that just part was added, creepy. added the the convertible, which Dave was one of your nightmares. Even if you just had the convertible come up with the Freddy stripes and them driving away screaming, I would have bought that. Otherwise, everything with her kicking her dad out, mom sticking into the bed, and then mom getting 
pulled through the door, all bullshit. Do you guys uh, ever have uh, premonitionary dreams? You guys ever dreamed something that later on you looked back on and, and you actually dreamed something that came true? I once dreamt that I peed the bed. <laughs> I don't pee Me too. Bed. I think that's probably my only one. I don't mean like you dreamed that you went out for sushi and then you went out for sushi. <laughs> like you, you never had, you never, you've never questioned whether you predicted the future in a dream. Well, I would tell someone to be careful sometimes if I had a dream and something daunting happened in the dream, then I would be like, yo, watch out. I had a dream. Mm. One time my friend told me that she dreamt that I won $500 on a scratch ticket. So I bought a scratch ticket. And I didn't, I didn't win anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, this, this movie, both of these movies, Come True and Nightmare on Elm Street, both reminded me that the wackiest thing that I believe, I don't believe in like much of the wacky things, like I don't believe in ghosts, I don't believe in astrology or any of these obviously like fake things that aren't real, but I kind of believe Whoa. in premonitionary Whoa. dreams, maybe. I might believe in premonitionary dreams because I've had some, I've had dreams where... There, there was like the, the big one that happened to me was like around the year 2000, maybe. And I had this crazy dream. It was like really wild. And uh, it wasn't like that scary necessarily or like that crazy, but I was like compelled for some reason to get up after the dream and get paper and pen. And I wrote it all down and then I folded it up and I stuck it somewhere where I would never find it, you know? And I wouldn't think it was like, it didn't mean that much to me. I just like was like, I have to write this down. Um, but then years later, like two to five years later, when I moved out of that apartment where I lived, I found it and all of the things that I wrote down, all the things had happened within that time. And they were like significant life things. It was really weird because I had completely forgotten that it happened. Uh, and then since then there have been a couple other times where, you know, they don't, you don't always connect these things like right away, but, um, that was the most significant, but there are times where I've definitely had those dreams where they've been born out uh, sometime later. So I think there is something to the whole, maybe, I'm not saying there is, but there might be something to the whole like subconscious world and these sort of energies and, and things that we tap into when we're not fully conscious and we're, we're in this like dream sea and this like state of, you know, defragmenting or uh, processing and there's like physiological processes, whatever is going on. I think there might be like stuff going on there that we don't fully understand. Dude, my dude, my hair is standing up right now. <laughs> I got this new gel. <laughs> and uh, you said something about a dream that you had. Yeah, premonitionary. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, so missionary. Yeah, listen, I know you, you've already tagged me as like the superior dream guy. You apparently I mean, I, are. I, I yeah. thought we yeah, might have you're some. You're over there, like you know, I'm yeah. predicting the future. I you're know. get you're flying out the window. I'm just telling you what happened. <laughs> dream baller. <laughs> Trent, I need you to tell me every dream you have that I appear in. Mm-hmm. Do um, I win the lottery ticket? Tell I'm me. Not and sure that's you, not and that's not me yeah. hoping I'm in your dreams. That's Vegas. me being like, bitch, keep Vegas. me out of there. But if I'm in hills. there, let me know. That's a different podcast, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Trent's dreams. Uh, this is a rental right now. Um, 
it's like most of these movies, uh, big ones like this. I'm sure it's on and off different ones, but it, you can uh, yeah. VOD it. Yeah. Of course, it was on HBO Max for so long until this week. Oh, they're, I just tried they're to all on the it. stars. They're all on the stars yeah. uh, prime add-on. Yes. Yeah, until you get to really... Jason X, and then you got to go to HBO Max. You can get Jason X and uh, the 2009 reboot. But we talked about the poster game. I need I need to get this out. So Sam Raimi, when he was watching The Hills Have Eyes, he noticed a scene with a half-ripped Jaws poster and interpreted it as Wes Craven saying that The Hills Have Eyes was scarier than Jaws. Yes. So when Raimi did Evil Dead, he put a half-ripped poster of Hills in the cabin's basement. Wes Craven heard about this and saw Evil Dead so that's why Nancy is watching Evil Dead as she fights to stay awake in her bedroom at around like the 35-minute mark. Raimi would do this again in Ash versus Evil Dead two months after Craven died as an homage to him. So loving this winking, Raimi put Freddy's glove in two scenes of Evil Dead 2, which I never fucking knew about. So one, when Ash goes to the woodshed, the glove is above the door. And then two, in the basement, when Ash is looking for the missing Necronomicon pages, you see the glove again. But the glove glove was stolen by Robert Englund. He stole the glove, and everyone was asking where the glove was. Even in certain scenes, they didn't have it because he took it home. And then no one knew how Sam Raimi so ended maybe up with maybe it the wasn't glove. the real glove, but like Raimi obviously it had was the real glove. Device. It was, was the it real really? glove in yeah. No shit. Um, but like to tie in last week's Friday the Thirteenth episode in Jason Goes to Hell, you get both the Necronomicon and a Kandarian dagger from Evil Dead, and of course you get Freddy's glove in a much more overt and tantalizing way. Which I literally, until I watched Jason Goes to Hell this week, I forgot about the whole Necronomicon and Kandarian Dagger tie-in and how pretty lame it is. Uh, But I still love the end scene with Freddy's Glove. So I love the poster game. That's like another thing like the showing Night of the Living Dead on TV and like like just these people, hey, this is a tradition. Like keep it going. I love that too. I, I love that watching like filmmakers talk to each other that are like of a feather, right. you know. And it, yeah. it's like a little bit of competition, but it's mostly just like winking and being like, "Yeah, yeah. you know, you're acknowledging one another." That doesn't really happen in, you know, in your typical dramatic movie. That's like something that's very horror genre specific. I feel like I love that. Did you guys want to do like a spoiler round? You guys had some Let's stuff go. you wanted to say about the first movie uh, that was a spoiler okay. or something. So at the end, <laughs> oh! So the whole movie's happening, and then just at the end, you guys ready? Like, turn off your shit. Uh, we're, oh, we're, we're yeah, spoiling we're spoiling. Shit. Oh my god! Turn here we off go. your well, shit if off. you don't want to know the spoiler. <laughs> if you're still about listening. to come, woo! You're watching the whole movie, and then all of a sudden, she gets a text message on her phone. After she's just committed this crazy murder, she's covered in blood. She looks in the mirror. She's got fangs like a vampire. And her phone dings, and she looks at it, and it says, you have been in a coma for 20 years. Like, we were doing this research study, trying this new technique to try to wake you up. Please wake up. The end. And it's like, what the fuck? It's such... These these movies, St. Maude did the same thing. And it's like the last 
two seconds of the movie, they do something wild that changes kind of like the dynamic of other things that you've seen leading up to that. Um, so that's the spoiler. What do you guys think? I would have left that out. I didn't love that. That was like my least favorite part uh, of the movie. It. I love it. Because I just thought what, that- What, the, the, text, the text on the phone? Yeah, what he just said. I would have left that out. Like I would have just ended where she's looking in the mirror and she sees the fangs in her own mouth. That was like enough ambiguity and story for me that when that text comes through, oh, you're in a coma, we're trying to reach you like, uh, okay, but that that's all it does. And then it just ends anyway. I just felt like that brought it too much into the real world for me. And I was like into this like crazy world of like, you don't know what's real and what isn't. And that kind of broke the wall for me. I would have just ended it. I wouldn't have had that in there. Well, what I took it as is the whole subconscious thing uh, that who's the, the writer that did the, that you were talking about the reference, the title cards or whatever. Dick. That was Carl Jung. Um, Carl Jung. So what I what I think is like the the doctors and the experiments and the sleep study and all that stuff is her subconscious interpretation of what's actually happening to her. Right. There are doctors around her. Yeah. There's maybe even a doctor that she remembers that she thought was cute or whatever. Yeah. And that's yeah. riff or whatever. You know what I mean? So. I get that, but I feel like it makes it like not as weird and cool. You know. Ah, I disagree. I disagree. One hundred percent. Phase. Uh, you know uh, what I mean, like everything. Thank you, Internet, for um, being there, even for such a new movie. But look, uh, yes, Dave. Everybody that's around her is like sort of somebody trying to reach her. But you notice that in the beginning, that Riff isn't there. So as all the doctors are coming into her world, what else do you notice? One, she's avoiding her mother. So there's a reason that her subconscious is avoiding her mother. And we don't know. Like, may, I interpret that as she's avoiding her mother because that could be a tie-in to waking up, to like a way too real presence in her life. Or she's avoiding her mother because one of the reasons that she's in a coma is something that happened with her mother. Do we maybe know her mother that's didn't her mother? make it. Maybe, maybe, maybe she did, or they're both in comas, like whatever. Or maybe her mother's fine and she's in a coma. <laughs> what if uh, that's not I don't her, think mother. her mother is in a coma? How do we know that's her mother? Because all that is, is a lady who came into the room after she snuck into the room and got something. She'd been talking to a friend about staying someplace. That could have been her mother. Um, it's it, it, it's her it's her I I firmly believe it's her mother. I think it's her. I mother. think that I think that riff that you're talking about, the reason that we meet like all the other doctors and people in the sleep study, and he's like quote unquote stalking her, is that's her past lover, like that's somebody that she was actually in a relationship with, and she her subconscious as they're trying to reach her, they're saying, hey. This is somebody oh, that right. we're injecting into your into right. your subconscious to huh. try to bring you out of the coma. Okay, I could buy that. Who knows what year it is? Who knows what kind of technology? Exactly. And the fang thing, the fang is, what it is, is it's a happy memory that they had together. A Halloween party. Whoa. They had a Halloween Whoa. party that they were, they were happy at, and they probably had sex. And they went as vampires or something, 
and that and Riff is a wild I mean, he brings up the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Like he sets it up. His name is Riff because he's Riff Raff. He is the the Igor in right. Rocky Horror she Picture says that. Show. She mentions that. And he oh, says see, that, that in the movie. Interesting. So as they're having that scene, she then goes back to his house and sees him looking at her, and they have this like she watches him having this like horror dream, which we think. And that's why at the end, when she smiles at the mirror with her fangs, she's realizing, holy fuck, my life doesn't suck. I'm in a coma and all of this is my subconscious. And these fangs are a really happy time that I had with Jeremy when I was alive and conscious. Wow. Wow. Amazing. That is interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I thought the ending was fucking stupid. I hated it. (laughs) I agree. I, I nope. don't think it made anything make any sense. I don't think it. It was like a. It was all a dream yes. the whole time. It was just a dream, man. And I'm like, nope. so you just wasted an hour and forty five minutes of my life for a dream. I understand that. So, so in the beginning, when she wakes up, when she wakes up on the slide and she sees her phone saying Seven Eleven. Free Slurpee Day. So Seven Eleven. The meaning is a very deep angelic number. It means you're being led to an awakening and it really has like four parts to it. So like part one of like the angelic number of 711 means you're spiritually evolving. Two means remove old beliefs to create a new life. Three, connect with your higher self through your heart. And four, transform into your true self. So... So it's another like midsummer movie where like they just show you right at the beginning, okay, here's the tapestry of what's going to happen. But then at the end when she finds her phone and she asks what time is it? And it's 10:01. That's a mirrored image. Again, it's guardian angels trying to communicate with you. So it's guiding you through your potential bad decisions. Uh, you know, Burns at this point seems to be painting with both a sci-fi brush and like a theological a theological brush here, mm-hmm. which I, I love about him. And again, we'll go to the slasher like aspect that he put into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's drawing on both to tell what is incre- just increasingly feels like a very personal story. I fuck like, but I fucking love this movie. I'll talk okay. about it for the next four hours if you want me to. But wouldn't it be nice if you could watch a movie? and understand what's happening without having to go onto the fucking internet to figure out everything. No, that that is true. But yeah. there are lots of movies like that. Yes, Kat, have you it. ever met me? There are lots of movies no, like that though. And I appreciate and Kevin, and that's why I love you on this podcast, because you give me all the facts. You tell me everything that I need to know about the film and I appreciate that. But in the moment I literally had to watch it twice in a row and I still had no fucking idea what was going on. So like That's fair. That's fair that's you know? but but you know what? Not every movie is like that for everybody. Um, I'll take these for days. Uh, and I definitely had like, you know, a lot of help um, look at, looking it up. But I, I love going down these rabbit holes. I love watching a movie that makes me research things. Um, but yeah, Cat, I, I, I respect that. Like there, there are times when you are not in the spot to be like, I don't want to have to catch that the phone says 7-Eleven at the beginning or 10 at the end. It's yeah, a puzzle. Just, it's a riddle that you have to figure out. It's not. It's I, like I a get movie that. Like, it just. It seemed a little pat to me. Like the little too neat of an explanation. Like it's. It's giving you this whole thing that is like, 
beyond explanation. You know, the dream state, the subconsciousness, the why do we see the same figures and all this stuff. What, what happened to that? Like, well, what I thought this study was about. I, I disagree. We're just that, talking about Nightmare on Elm Street. I think that just like Nightmare on Elm Street was supposed to be just it, the movie's called A Nightmare on Elm Street. Nancy is the only one that lives on Elm Street. She's the movie was supposed to be her nightmare. This movie was supposed to, well, not supposed to, it does exist entirely in Sarah's head. Everything you see in this movie exists in Sarah's head. All the way up until she sees the message on her phone, then looks in the mirror and sees her fangs and finally looks happy for the first time in the film. Yeah, I get that. It just was a little too, I don't know. I thought it was a little too pat. Like, I don't always want an explanation. I like movies a lot of times that don't give you that, like, oh, this is why everything happened. I don't know. It, it just, just raises more questions, though, and you don't even know right. what you just saw until a few hours later of thinking about it. And I yeah, I don't, think, like this, that, I don't think this movie gave you any answers. There's so many movies that I love now that when I first walked out of the movie, I was like, what the fuck? I don't like. I maybe thought I didn't like it because yeah. I was so perplexed and so confused. Yeah. And I, anytime a, a movie does shit to me like that, that just makes me feel weird. Uh, it's it, this song. This uh, movie is definitely like a a problem to solve. And once you figure that out, it makes you want to watch it again. That it, that's what it did for me anyway. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. My example of that would be the lighthouse. Yes, I was. Wa- I, I remember oh, watching shit. that movie, being like, "I hate this fucking movie," and it like took me like a couple weeks of like thinking about it. I was like, "Okay, I'm gonna watch it again," and then I liked it. But right afterwards, I was like, "What the fuck did I just watch for two hours?" <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> 